Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hi, this is Leland Whitehouse. I'm an events intern at the Yale Sustainable Food Project, and I'm in the studio with Jackson Landers, hunter, author, and adventurer. Uh, Jackson grew up in a vegetarian household and started hunting for food as an adult. He's uh, currently a hunting instructor and guide who's taught everybody from vegans to grandmothers how to kill uh, animals for food. He's written a couple of books, including The Beginner's Guide to Hunting Deer for Food and Eating Aliens. Uh, Jackson is among the founders of the Invasive War Movement, which uh, involves itself with hunting invasive species for food and making them tasty and marketable in the, uh, in the edible world. Uh, we're going to talk about some of those invasive species here uh, today. Uh, your, so, Jackson, your website and a number of articles I've read about you in the New York Times mm-hmm. put you right at the, at, at the source of the invasive war movement. Can you just give us a sense of what that term means? Um, the term was coined uh, by a, a, a deputy science, write, or science editor for the New York Times, uh, uh, James Gorman, uh, in an article that was about it was about uh, my work, and then there was uh, another woman who was you know sort of talking about eating uh, invasive plants. Uh, this is something that I deliberately set out to create some years ago. Uh, I wanted to create a a. I, it's not that I expect this to be something that everyone's doing, but I wanted to create a cultural movement of a certain number of people around the country going out of their way. Uh, to hunt invasive species, specifically targeting them and, and developing the, the, the tactics and the methods for doing this and looking for ways to leverage them as a uh, resource that could be overexploited until the resource is gone, right, <laughs> as yeah. human nature is, is wont to do. So I, I deliberately set out to do this. I started writing about it um, you know, when I was blogging and writing articles about hunting invasive species. And of course, I set out to write my, um, my most recent book, Aliens. So I wanted to create a culture of people around the, uh, around the country who were deliberately doing this, and um, uh, Jim Gorman came up with a name for it. And <laughs> I think you, it's working. <laughs> it sounds great to me. Can you can you pinpoint the sort of the the moment where you where it occurred to you that this is that eating invasive species was was a, a viable solution or at least a part of a solution to these problems? Uh, yeah, it, I would say you know, actually it um, it came out of. When I decided to do this, it came out of – it's really a synthesis of a couple of different books that I had read a very long time ago. Uh, I had – I was just about finished with writing uh, The Beginner's Guide to Hunting Deer for Food, my first book. And uh, I was tr- I was trying to think, what's my next project going to be? Uh, among other things, I was just trying des- – desperately trying to stay away from a conventional desk job. <laughs> and, you know, and I'm, I'm, I was, uh, you know, trying to continue this launch of a, a career – a second career as a writer – and um, I, I wanted some, and I don't just want to write a book. I want a real project. I don't want to just write something and here's a nice book on the shelf. I want to do things and write about things that that can affect the world and and have uh, particularly have do ecological good. And the idea was basically uh, uh, Douglas Adams, who's best known for his Hitchhiker's uh, uh, Guide series, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, and, and all those. Uh, 
uh, he, I, my favorite book that he ever wrote was actually not science fiction at all. It was called Last Chance to See, and it was based on a thing he did for the BBC a long time ago where he traveled around the world looking for the most – what was supposed to be a list of the most endangered species in the world that were still in the wild. I figured this is the last chance to see them. That was the basic concept. In practice, there were some things that weren't really all that endangered. He just – like the Komodo dragon was not about to disappear. He just wanted to go to Komodo, yeah. and that's cool. <laughs> right. Yeah. Smoke them if you got them. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And um, so I had read that when I was uh, in high school. It made a big impact on me. It sounded like such a great thing to do. And Eating Aliens is basically Last Chance to See in Reverse, where I took the most problematic wildlife, the things that we just want gone in North America and the Caribbean. And instead of just go, you know, of going and I'm going to see them and just mourn the end and, of it and ask people to help protect it, um, you know, it was the other way around. I went and I hunted them down ruthlessly and killed them and ate them. So it's, it's, uh, it's last chance to see in reverse. And it was also, there was a, um, uh, uh, a book, another book I read in, in college called Alien Invasion. Uh, the name of the author escapes me right now, unfortunately, but about just different invasive species that were becoming an issue at that, at that time. I guess it was the book was probably written in the mid-1990s. And that made an uh, impact on me also because you know, I, I was like the idea – before I knew what they were a problem, when I was a kid, I liked the idea of invasive species. I thought like I would love to have zebras running around and I wanted to have a garden and plant like exotic plants because like, I was always a gardener. I wanted to plant bamboo and things like that. And um, and I, when I found out what a problem this was, it was just such a disappointment. But um, so eating aliens was a synthesis of, of these of these two things, uh, and and that's really where it came from. Uh, you currently live in Charlottesville, mm-hmm. Virginia, uh, with a couple of kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in D.C. last spring and worked in a restaurant where I was uh, continually eating leftover snakehead. Can you talk about? Uh, can you talk about snakehead? This is just my favorite name for an invasive species. Yeah, I think it's it's one of the. And, and tell me, would you agree that they they're a lot like swordfish? It's delicious. Yeah, yeah, they're great. Um, yeah, the the snakehead is a um, it's a fish that was uh, brought here from uh, from Asia. Uh, usually, what we find in the wild is a northern snakehead. There are, I think, something like seventeen or eighteen different species of snakehead in in the genus, and. Um, there's been so much sensationalism about this fish. I mean, it is an ecological problem, but when it first showed up, they call it, you know, in the wild, they call it the frankenfish and all this all this sort of thing, and there was a lot of sensationalism going on. It, it was brought here for food, and it actually has a role in Chinese medicine. It's it's believed to, um, to uh, eating it while you're recovering from surgery is supposed to help you uh, heal faster, and... Um, it, it was they were brought over and, and we were actually for a long time they'd be sold in the back of like a Chinese grocery they'd have a tank of live ones and um, they ship live very easily because they are um, they, they're able to gulp air you know they have a, a swim bladder that they can absorb air air th- oxygen through and so people call it the Frank oh, it's like a Frankenstein fish because they say oh it can breathe out of water and all this sort of thing and that's actually not all that unusual there are plenty of catfishes that, that can do the same thing that's not you know they're uh, tarpon gulp air there's lots of fish that gulp air like that it's it's not that strange a thing. And you hear all this nonsense about how, well, they can travel outside of, you know, they'll climb out of the water and, like, you know, um, uh, hunt for food like that or something. And actually, they, I don't think a snakehead would ever deliberately uh, leave the water. They don't have, there are fish that can do that, like mud skippers, but that have well developed pectoral fins. And when you put a snakehead on land, it just sort of flops around. It can't really send itself in any particular direction. Uh, but they are ambush predators with very sharp teeth. They do get quite big. 
and um, they're fond of very thick cover. They are very well camouflaged. They are very difficult to fish for because they stick to this very thick cover. I spent that was actually one of the hardest things that I had to get when I did a chapter on the snakehead when I was working on eating aliens. And they they stay in such thick weeds. They you will find snakeheads in water that looks like no fish could possibly be in it because it's more weed and mud than water. And they'll kind of ambush prey from in that that stuff. And, and it makes it really hard to fish for because your hooks will get tangled up constantly. You cast into it and it gets stuck. And so there was this challenge of finding weedless hooks and lures that would a snakehead would want to bite and wouldn't get hopelessly tangled up. Uh, it was uh, that was very very grueling fishing. And they have sharp teeth, so you have to use wire leaders that'll bite through the line. They're ch- very challenging to, to fish for. But if you do get them, and I think they are sometimes bycatch for commercial fishermen. They're not out after them, but they will get them sometimes in the Chesapeake area, in the, the Potomac River. Uh, but I think the texture and the flavor is so much like swordfish. I think as long as if we are able to harvest them. I don't know why we need to be killing swordfish. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, you're talking about a species that we can run out of. Uh, you know, and and that's true for a lot. Of, actually, a lot of um, uh, saltwater fish, a lot of fish that are endangered or, or that were really depleting through overfishing. Man, you put two two different species of fish in your typical American diner's mouth. They don't know the difference. You know, there have been a couple good studies to, to taking DNA samples from uh, fish served and sold as one species and, you know, and up to up, in some cases up to 70% in some areas of the fish are something other than what they're supposed to be. People don't know if they're eating tilapia or Chilean sea bass. So why do we have to catch a Chilean sea bass? You know, we could be there's invasive tilapia all over the water, waterways in Florida that we could be netting. We could be serving that. We've got uh, um, rivers full of silver carp out west that taste basically like cod. Can we please just serve the silver carp instead and leave the cod alone, which are getting smaller and fewer? And snakeheads are one of those things. They taste so much like swordfish. Let's just eat the snakeheads. We just got to rename the buggers, I guess. This is the secret. I guess so. I guess so. Um, you recently uh, went python hunting. I did. Here. Can you talk a little bit? I have, my, my question is two parts. How do you uh, hunt a python? How do you cook a python? Um, how do you hunt a python? Um, everyone's still learning how to do this, actually. Um, so that's still sort of up in the air. I mean, I can give you my two cents on it. But um, it's gotten a lot of media attention for the last month or so because Florida has – Florida did this uh, python hunting contest. And something like 1,200 people signed up for it. And there's a, there's two prizes. There's $1,500 prize for whoever gets the most pythons and $1,000 for whoever gets the longest one. And the contest just ended, and only 50 snakes were turned in, actually. And there's been all this criticism. So, well, it's completely ineffective. You can't hunt them, or are they really out there? Well, the thing is, you know, when I first started hunting deer, it took me a few seasons, you know, two or three seasons before I actually got my first one. Uh, and that's an animal that's you can you can pick up books and read magazine articles about how to hunt them. We have a whole doctrine of how to do this. Uh, how do you hunt pythons? Well, nobody knew. So, you know, imagine what would happen if you take, you know, uh, 1,200 people who've never hunted deer before and you put them out in the woods and say, well, here's a gun, good luck. You know, very you probably get about 50 deer would come back. But we also know that talented deer hunters who know what they're doing can take deer like clockwork. And I think it's the same thing with pythons. People are still learning how to do it. It's going to take a few years of people going out in the Everglades and hunting before they figure out how to do it. My two cents on, on the best way to do it is that I think um, uh, I was using a pump-action 20-gauge shotgun, which you don't really need a whole lot of penetration because the brain – what you need is a headshot. You want to kill it instantly. You don't want the animal to suffer. And anything short of destroying the brain in a reptile usually does not really do the job. They keep going for a long time. 
um, the brain is so very close, even on a big snake, is very close to the outside of the body. You don't need a lot of penetration. So I think birdshot from a 20-gauge, a very short, handy weapon that handles uh, well in, in thick cover. I brought that, and then I also brought a, a 38 special um, um, a revolver as a, a secondary weapon. If I have to reach into a you know a, a tangled area with just one hand, where the shotgun would even be too tight. But the the, the important thing is to just move very very slowly. Uh, I think the mistake a lot of people were making was just trying to cut. And I met a lot of python hunters while I was down there, and people were trying to, I'll try this trail today, that trail tomorrow. They're dry, riding around at airboats and that sort of thing. And th- these snakes are so well camouflaged. I mean, you can be looking at one, right at one, and not realize that, that you're staring at an enormous python. They just blend in so well with, with the background. That I think the best way to do it is just pick a trail. It could be short, you know, quarter mile, half mile. Walk that same trail. Every day, same place. Don't hunt 10 different places. That one trail you walk, you know, three or four times a day until you know every stick and every branch that belongs there. And all of a sudden, you're, you're going to get plugged into it and say, wait, that branch wasn't there last time. And then you realize that that's a python. And then in the actual shooting part is very easy. So that's, I think, going to be the best way to, to hunt pythons. And, and it's, you're going to have to really get to know a small bit of habitat to know that, that something is out of place there. As far as how you cook it, um, cooking pythons, um, first I should say that they do have very high mercury levels. There's a lot of mercury out there in the Everglades, and nobody's quite sure where it's coming from. And to put this in some context, uh, canned tuna has um, uh, something, what is it, like um, uh, around 770,000 parts per million of mercury, and that's considered something to watch out for. And a big python that's been alive for a long time and really concentrated a lot of heavy metals from its diet can have up to, I think, 3 million parts per million. That would be unusually high, but they can't have that much. You know, a younger python's going to have less. So if you're e- you don't want to make a habit of eating python because that could become a mercury issue. You know, one serving of python, if you're going to take a few bites, that's about probably, if you eat two or three bites of python just to try it, that's about like eating a can of tuna. You don't want to do this... You know, you never, we're never going to make it into a staple. It would just be a bad idea health-wise. That said, um, I just cooked it, uh, cooked python for the first time two nights ago, and I just did a little bit, uh, just uh, kind of stir-fried, um, and very simple, with just stir-fried in some olive oil with salt, pepper, and a little bit of dill. And I actually have video, uh, I haven't um, put it out there yet, of, of my kids tasting it, who will eat anything as long as it's not a vegetable. And... Um, their 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 judgment was it's pretty good tastes kind of like chicken let's put Worcestershire sauce on it there you go that's what they wanted to do <laughs> most reptiles taste like chicken so you've sold your kids on the invasive war on, oh yeah on eating invasives oh yeah do you find uh do you find it's at all a struggle to sell like restaurants or dinner guests or uh, the, the sort of broad food community on this stuff, or are they pretty receptive? Um, chefs love it. Um, I've done so many different events with chefs. I've done events with Slow Food, uh, Slow Food in Virginia, Slow Food, uh, a whole series of events a few years ago with Slow Food NYC. And I, there's so much enthusiasm for this because I think a, a lot of chefs in particular, it's like, you know, how long do you want to work with the same, you know, three or four species of meat? Gets kind of old. After, it's, after a while, it's like, I want to do something new. Okay, so there was the fusion thing for a while. I'm going to fuse, you know, Himalayan cuisine with like Mexican or whatever. And that's cool. But after a while, that kind of, you know, okay, that's been done. I think that talented chefs are always looking for a new horizon, and when you can hand them a new species, 
wow, you know, this is like fertile ground to trip. Nobody has put out the, you know, definitive set of recipes for snakehead and, and Python yet. So I always find a lot of enthusiasm when I want to do a re- an event at a restaurant's um, everybody seems really excited about it. I think if, as far as dinner guests, I think, you know, if you come to my house for dinner, you, you do so knowing this. You know what you're signing up for. That's right. Yeah. A few times I have sort of forgotten because I, some stuff I end up using as just, it becomes a household staple and I just think of it as food. And I have sort like, uh, this happened with the bear meat, uh, from that bear that I got the, um, that we mentioned the first part of the podcast this was a bear that had been hit by a car and was, uh, paralyzed and I had to finish it off. It was, you know, it was practically vegan meat because it was it was essentially cruelty free the animal had to die um, either way and I uh, brought it home and butchered it and I put once you put something through a meat grinder it just packages ground meat you just sort of forget what it is you know whether that's snake or iguana or whatever and you just put it in pasta sauce so I have had dinner guests come over where I just made pasta sauce or tacos and forgot to tell them they're eating iguana or bear or something <laughs> and afterwards I think well, maybe I should have said something mm-hmm. does it matter I don't know <laughs> um, for those of us in this tri-state area up here, is there one uh, an invasive species you'd recommend we order off the menu? Kind of thing. Should we? Start I don't know what for... I don't know what you could get on the menu up here. Um, I mean, here in New Haven, Connecticut, where we're doing the podcast from, uh, Mia's Sushi um, often has invasive species on the menu. It's not something you're going to find in in most towns. I mean, it's, you can't just walk into a, a restaurant and say and order. Uh, starling or or feel hog or something like that. If you want to see that happen, then you're going to have to be an advocate for it in your community. What I would say is you're going to have to learn to hunt for the stuff so you can get some of the meat. And people get excited about it. once you, and then find a chef at a, at a restaurant you like and respect and say, hey, do you want to play with us? Let's do an event. Let's do a tasting. We'll do a little after hours party. We'll I'll bring a bunch of starlings or pigs or whatever it is, Canada geese or whatever it's going to be that you're going to do. And give people a chance to taste it. And if you can find a supply for it, it's going to bring a lot. It's going to create local press for that restaurant and they can put it on the menu. And uh, but we need people to locally be advocates for it. You can't just walk in most cities. You cannot walk into a restaurant and order invasive species. The uh, place you mentioned in D.C., there is a. uh, yeah, there is a, a fish wholesaler, John Roropaw, I can't remember the name of his business, who is now supplying um, a lot of restaurants in the D.C. area with Snakehead. We need more guys like that out there. Well, Jackson Landers, thank you so much for coming in the studio with us today. Uh, this has been the Yale Sustainable, Yale Sustainable Food Project. Uh, keep an eye out for Jackson's books, uh, The Beginner's Guide to Hunting Deer for Food and Eating Aliens. They're both awesome. And thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at www.yale.edu slash sustainable food.